One little girl didn't stop drawing. She barely glanced up at the paper aeroplanes dancing in the blue sky above her. She drew and she drew. She was self-possessed in her determination, and I guessed that maybe I'd been like her when I was six. She drew an orchard and a garden. She drew fruit trees and the sun, her grandma and her school. She drew flowers and she drew birds. Heba was six, her little body tucked into a large bright pink parka. I asked her to draw her home for me. Heba looked into my eyes for a fleeting but intense second and I saw a seriousness that no six-year-old should understand. Then she drew, quickly, deliberately, and at the end passed me the drawing of the end of her home and returned to another drawing of a fruit-laden tree on vivid green grass. That day Heba made me realise how imperative it is for the world to see her drawing, for the world to see drawings by every child who has survived the Syrian disaster. Big people have big voices, and most of them ignore the small voices of the smallest among us. And Heber was one of the most vulnerable little humans I have met. But her voice is big. Her story is as graphic as it is tragic. If only we give her a second to listen and consider the message that she gave me to show you. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi, and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name is Angus. Today we're talking about a book created by Archibald Prize-winning artist Ben Quilty. It's called Home, and it's a compilation of drawings made by Syrian children who fled their homes and country to escape an ongoing war. Ben, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Angus. Thanks for having me. So you travelled through Europe and the Middle East in 2016 to places where the Syrian refugee crisis was peaking. How did you come to embark on that trip? My friend and author, Richard Flanagan, asked, rang me out of the blue and said, Benny, I've got been offered this trip to the Middle East, uh, at the behest of World Vision, who are looking for creative ways to re-engage empathy in the in the community here and more broadly um, around the world. Uh, at the time, Richard had been also asked by um, a major newspaper in London to write a piece for The Guardian there about the Syrian refugee crisis. And Richard rang and said, would you come? I'd like you to help me illustrate this story if you can and see see what becomes of it. So I, we ended up landing in Beirut and spending some time through the Becca Valley where most 1.2 million refugees have come across the border from Syria. In fact, Lebanon increased their population 20% in 12 months, which is, when you compare it to a country like ours, um, it, it's breathtaking. And... Um, we ended up most of the time in the Becker Valley, but then travelled on, right, following the, the 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 sea of humans from Syria all the way up through Serbia on their way to Germany and, and across the islands of Greece where the people were landing from Turkey. So why did you agree to go with Richard on this trip? That's a good question, Angus. I, <laughs> I, I guess it felt... Uh, I felt like it was an incredible opportunity as an artist to res- to see something that would give me um, 
a clearer insight of what what was happening there, and I'm interested in in history and in in the future. I think too, interested in human beings, uh, and it was just a a real an opportunity, and then a real privilege to witness this massive collective trauma of the Syrian people, and then to be given the opportunity, which finally for me, Richard wrote the brilliant essay that was then published by Penguin Random House called Notes on an Exodus, and for me, in in the end, was this book called Home. So Richard going there, obviously he, he had this essay that he knew he was going to write. Did you know the sort of art that you wanted to create out of this experience when you went? No, and the piece that, that I just read you talks about paper airplanes dancing in the sky, and the first experience I had of getting out my materials to to a, a group of children who were halfway to Germany, up up Europe, um, they pulled the paper out of my paper, very expensive French paper for $5 a sheet and made them into paper airplanes, <laughs> the most expensive paper airplanes I've ever seen. <laughs> I thought there's got to be another way. And it was at that transit station in Serbia, minus 20 degrees on a very clear, sunny day, but very cold. And a little girl tucked into a, that bright pink Parker who started drawing and she just did draw and draw and draw until I asked her to draw her home. And that's when the idea really um, took off, that I thought this child, the world needs to hear from this child. And, and it's a way of directly, for me, to engage with that child was to, was to just absolutely empower empathy that, that, I, that I hadn't had. I didn't feel for these people because it's hard on this side of the planet to feel for those people there. But her drawing, when I took it away, carried that that empathy. It carried the power of my first meeting with that little child, uh, and then to go forward and make find thousands of drawings and to distill them into this book of three, the three hundred be- drawings that I think best illustrate the chaos, sadness, hope, um, loss, grief, and and um, and the future of these children um, was a very a privilege. So what was the actual drawing that Heber drew for you? What did it look like? She'd been drawing pretty pictures and, and symbols that she'd learnt on her way up at different transit stations. There was other lovely people all the way down her path, all the way back into Syria, I, I'd guess, who had taught her to draw love hearts. And she was drawing pretty trees and the the, the Syrian flag. And I asked her to draw her home and she drew very clearly a, a, a helicopter with distinctly three barrel-shaped bombs underneath it and then a, a house that was had fallen apart and two bloody bullet-hole-ridden bodies beside this little house. And she's six years old. Uh, um, that's the Heber started it for, for me, the idea, and the book's dedicated to that little girl as well. Yeah, yeah, and Richard Flanagan in his um, introduction to the book as well recalls, I think, was that the drawing that he showed Ai Weiwei and just yes, that's brought, right. brought yeah. that man to, you know, he was speechless. Yes. Yeah. Um, so obviously meeting that little girl uh, kicked everything off in terms of creating this book, but what are some of the other things that you saw and the other people that you met throughout this trip in 2016? Uh, we, look, we... I mean, Richard had the hardest task at that point to tell the story and, and, and was interviewing parents of these children. I took him the drawing that Heber did and, and he he took it off me and I saw his his face change and he said, he handed the drawing to the father and said, 
do you realise that your little girl knows this, has seen this, and the father said through a translator, all the children of Syria have seen this. Um, so all of them have these incredibly graphic, confronting, harrowing stories of survival for us. We met the people who had survived and were fleeing. But many children in this book have drawn the day that their sibling was killed or their family member, their uncles and aunts were killed, um, their neighbours were killed, their dog was killed. Um, a lot of death and a lot of um, things that six-year-olds in our country have never witnessed except for, I guess, frontier violence um, of Indigenous people would share that history. But um, for me to meet them having just left Syria, um, the stories were endless, endless. And each story in this book, each photo of a, a, a drawing, a child's drawing in this book is a, is a whole new um, unique story. Travelling through these places with Richard, do you think him as a writer and you as a visual artist, do you think you're experiencing those scenes in different ways? Yeah, it's a good question. I, look, I, I guess there was parts that we both felt that there was a level of voyeurism which we were both very uncomfortable with. But we were there to respond, to actually tell the story and to respond rather than to report as a journalist would do. And I have to say I felt very um, very moved for journalists who do have to cover things like that. And I worked in the media many years ago and it was lost on me back then how confronting it is to have to, to need to ask people their stories when they've survived such horror and often gone through such violent loss. Um, and as creatives, I guess, look, I felt um, at some, at, at periods, I think we both felt uh, unable to respond, that the circumstances were so extraordinary and so graphic that it was blinding for us both. But as artists, you come back and you bring the experience back. We, made, we both made a lot of notes and I made a lot of drawings and you get time to actually properly in a considered way, respond to what you've seen, which is, again, it's a real privilege. That's what a, what we do as artists. And Richard definitely did it with notes on an exodus, which took some time. But then he said it did, it fell out of him. It was in there. And it, he formulated it into his way of writing, which became that incredible essay. Yeah. Yeah. I did hear you speak. I think it was with an interview with The Guardian about how when you returned immediately you're at a bit of a loss mm. of what to create out of out of what you've seen. So apart from this book, have you created any art in response to that trip? Yeah, there's been a lot. I I, um, I bought home life jackets in my bag uh, and there there's literally millions of life jackets around the shore of Lesbos, the island that we went on to in Greece. As the people come across Turkey, across the Aegean Sea and drop the wet and cold life jacket on the ground and remembering that at that point, the hills in Lesbos were covered in snow and ice. It's really, really cold. And the crossing's often done at night to avoid the Coast Guard. Um, uh, so I bought life jackets home and then I realised that those life jackets, as well as the drawing, carried, for me, carried the memory in a sense that the life jacket is the form that fitted and one of them particularly fitted a little girl. And I kept thinking of Heba, who was the, the age of my daughter Olivia at the same time, 
little pyjamas that I found discarded in the bush there and this tiny little life jacket which would have fitted a tiny little body and I hope that little person survived and got to Germany. But I ended up importing through an NGO almost 6,500 life jackets and we pulled them apart and made them into um, all sorts of forms uh, which have been shown around the country at the Art Gallery of South Australia, the National Gallery of Victoria and more recently at Sydney Contemporary, the Art Fair in Sydney. Um, uh, but but in the end, they're my stories as a, a white man, Australian man living this life of privilege that we often underestimate. My best, the best response I've had for me personally is to create this book and let those children speak for themselves. So how did you actually go about gathering the drawings in this book? I, after coming home from that, that first trip with Richard, I'd started collecting drawings then. I realised that the power of these drawings is hard to describe when you're handed them by that child. Um, so I came home and I formulated a plan. Um, I, I wrote to World Vision and said, I'd like to come back. I'd like to start uh, workshops with children. Um, and I did. I went back into Beirut and spent a lot of time in Jordan and, and um, Beirut, uh, Becca Valley in Lebanon. And we, between Connie Lenneberg, who's the head of a Melbourne lady, who's the head of World Vision operations at that time in the Middle East, the two of us wrote guidelines so that the workshop could go on without me. But I actually ran workshops with hundreds of children uh, and then we gave that that written workshop idea with all the child safety issues written into it and that then was sort of emailed around the whole Middle East for different NGOs who were desperate to get these children's stories out to to have the opportunity to be involved, to get children to draw and then to post the letters back to my studio, post, post the drawings in packages back to my studio and they are incredible packages to open I have to say in my studio to pull out drawings from northern Iraq which at that time was ISIS held territory um, drawings coloured pencils which are banned under ISIS rule um, with no names no ages, no parents details and then I was told through the NGO that they'd been smuggled out without any details because the families were terrified that if these drawings were found that the the names would link the drawings back to parents and families and cause destruction to that family just for the act of those children telling their story with coloured pencils. So the, all of the drawings were compiled, all of them were catalogued. I treated them like I would expect my own work to be treated, uh, photographed, documented, catalogued, and then curate, I curated this this book. Yeah, so could you describe some of the, the drawings in this book? Ah uh, yes, well, um, there, there's a, there is a mixture. There, a lot of children want to draw beautiful, happy things, and that was part of the brief. If that's what they wanted to draw, then I was willing, of course, happy for them to draw whatever they wanted to draw. Drawings are a moment of respite as well for me in my own practice. Making art is a way of unpicking, not only unpicking taboos, but also surviving and coping with experiences. I think. Um, so I asked them to draw about their home and whether it was what they remembered of their home in Syria, what their home was now in a refugee camp in Lebanon or in Germany or Ashfield in Western Sydney, or what they hoped their home would become, whether it was Syria. So it's quite broad, but they all responded to that, that, that brief. Um, 
there's a lot of destruction, obviously. There's a lot of the, the stories, a lot of images of their schools being destroyed, of, of buses, this, this image of the bus being shot at by Assad forces kept recurring right around refugee camps around Syria, um, and, and the loss of their school. So the idea of home, that the, that the school is such a central part of a child's understanding of how they belong, how, what their home is, the drawings of, of school being flattened and destroyed came over and over again as well. Um, yeah, there's almost 300 drawings and they're all different, but they all tell the same story in the end. Yeah, yeah, I think looking through them, one of the things that really strikes you is that a lot of the drawings are what you'd get from any child here in that, you know, you have a house that's a, you know, maybe like a yellow rectangle with a blue triangle roof and some trees, except there'll be stick figures with guns or, you know, stick figures bleeding. So why why do you think that this medium of like the children's drawing is so affecting? It's a very good question. I think back to Heber handing me that drawing and it just struck me so hard. I think it's the children we know, we all know children. We were children. I mean, they are us. Richard wrote that beautifully in his his essay. I think that it's also it's the fact that they are us, that we were them. But more importantly, that we know that you, if you have had any experience of a child, you know that there is no propaganda. That concept is lost on them. So that for a child to draw any of the drawings that you'll, you'll find in this book free of propaganda, that, it, that there's an essence of the truth that is hard to come to, hard to find in, in, in adult society, that it goes straight to the problem without, without, bias and without propaganda. I think that's why they're so powerful. Mm. Yeah. You've got the book open there. Did you want to say something? Well, yeah. I mean, you were asking about individual stories Mm. and I just opened it on 108 by chance. And the children were also given the opportunity to draw on the back of of the drawing any text that they felt was relevant to to my understanding of the drawing. And this little child, 12 years old, Nael, has drawn just chaos. There's blood dripping from eyes. There's a tank with a huge red rocket firing out of it, a green aeroplane, and a tiny figure which looks like a dog or a human right in the bottom. And this child has written, I drew a tank driving over the houses, aeroplanes bombing a town, everyone died, dogs are barking. I... There's a few places through the book where there's this, there's a written memory. The child has written their memory of the sound of what happened, and it quite often involves animals, distressed animals. Um, those small details, which I I only came to as we translated, we had to find translators, and I was so scared that that something would slip through that was somehow ISIS affiliated. That I had them translated several times which is sad that my paranoia, my Western paranoia and lack of trust, but I had to make sure that I continued with their lack of propaganda, that the translations showed up these whole nother level of, of the chaos of what these children have experienced that often involves the sound, the feeling, the sense, the smells, um, the, the the small pieces of text, I guess, are a part and parcel of reading a book like this. 
it is a book of images, but the text that the children have added adds a level of poignancy that I think gives the book another dimension. Yeah. Um, Richard described this book and the way the images work, sometimes paired with the little descriptions that you're just talking about, as journalism at its best. Do you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. We're constantly in a polarised world worrying about left and right, uh, and we seem the chasm between those two things seems to be growing. These children's drawings fit neatly in the middle. They fill that void because of their lack of... Uh, their lack of propaganda, their lack of, of an agenda. They are just simply telling the story as it is, which is the purest form of journalism. I agree with him. Yeah, absolutely. Did you notice any differences between the artworks created by children who are still in crisis areas and children who have found refuge? Uh, yes, the children that I met that we we spent some time with here in Western Sydney um, at a little bookshop shop called Lost in Books, which is helping children, refugee families, to find books in Arabic and English that will help those children to find their place in a new in a new world. Uh, and yes, those children, they 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 f- all of the children. Many of the children I met had that bounce that you can't get out of a child. That happiness that eternal optimism that children seem to be able to cope with the most harrowing experiences. But there was another level to the children I met here. They were properly, you know, I, th- I guess there's a, a sense of behaviour in a refugee camp that the children are under a lot of pressure. A lot of them are having to beg to support their families. There's very, very dangerous parts of, of, of the refugee camp um, areas through the Becker Valley, which are very close to the border. Um, often they, they fear harboring ISIS militants escaping or fleeing. So it's a fraught world for these children. But all of the drawings that came from the children who drew in Australia, and there's not that many, there's a few, three or four in the book, all of them are filled with the utter um, relief of finding a new home. Yeah, there is one in there, and obviously all the drawings in there are affecting and tell their own story, but there was one that just sort of made me cry, where it was like an A4 page divided like a little comic book into four, and it was just like the simplest thing, and it was just like, Australia is my home, I've found my safe place, there's beautiful beaches, I love living here, and it was just like really, really, yeah, optimistic, hopeful, thankful, mm. yeah. That little one was from Hampton Park Primary School in Western Sydney. Mm. Um, and a family, the, the parents came in the day that that was drawn and the sense of relief. But for the parents, um, there's a layer, level of confusion of how to fit into a community like ours. In Lebanon, there's still language. Customs are very similar. Um, here they face all of the complex issues that I think most of us who are intellectual enough to understand it face of racism, um, of, of isolation, cultural isolation, and, and literally being isolated, feeling that you don't fit in somewhere. Um, for the parents, that, that, that is every time I met those people in, in Australia, I felt for the parents, but the children, they're the future Australians that will rule the country. They are, they are filled with, 
with the, the, the happiness that comes with having a, a soccer oval without bomb pock marks in it and, and, and no one beheading anyone and no one being shot and helicopters only carrying news crews or, or passengers, no guns. Um, that's palpable when you meet those children. Do you think this book should be shown to our kids here? Yeah, of course, I think so. I think it's a language that children will understand more quickly than us. I mean, there'll be there'll, there'll be none of the discussion about whether it has propaganda or not. They just understand it. It's an in, it is, I think, and I've said this before. I think it is an, the international language. Children's drawings can talk to everybody, uh, and all children draw using the same hand-eye coordination that a six-year-old has, whether you're from Lebanon or Syria or Australia. Uh, and I think it's an easy book to understand on that level. And I think children should absolutely read it. My children love it. They're obsessed with it. They're saddened by it, but intrigued. They want to know more. And I think that's the first step in feeling empathy, that you're intrigued with someone else means that you can open your heart and feel for them. Absolutely. More broadly, what do you hope Australia gets out of going through this book? Well, at the... The Abbott government cut, cut $11 billion from our international aid budget. We currently spend 21 cents in $100 on international aid. And when you consider that there are countries close by us really relying on the help that we provide them, what refugee children like these that I met in Lebanon, 1.2 million people, 500,000 children living in Lebanon waiting to go home to their Syrian homes... Um, I hope that we'll we'll change the foreign aid budget by voting for governments who are willing to support our neighbours and our fellow human beings around the world. All the more reason to go and buy this book. It was an absolute privilege to look through the drawings of this book and to have you here as well Thanks, to chat Angus. with them. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Home, Drawings by Syrian Children is published by Penguin Random House and is available now at all good bookshops.